Hello internet, this is Kopitam Council and I'm Hafiz. Today I'm again with... He's with me, Adi. Selamat Hari Haji everyone. I'm glad to be here, back here again. Yep, it Mubarak to those who are outside Malaysia. Um, today uh, is um, again Saturday. We always uh, record our podcast on Saturday and for the last 5-7 uh, days, the recent development that we have in Central America is very exciting. Well, not really exciting for Cuban, I guess. So <laughs> what's what's up in Central America, Adi? All right. So from what I have gathered so far is that there's some kind of uh, protests among uh, Cuban Americans over the regime that's handling Cuba right now. So, you know, the same regime that Fidel Castro that has set up and has been there in power for like, what, uh, 40, 50 years, 60 years. So there's a bit of protest there saying that they want the regime to change. They want the dictatorship to finally end. So it kind of puts uh, America in a tricky situation considering its interactions with Cuba. There's a lot of things that to unpack right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you see, because this is not new, de- definitely... Uh, America meddling in other people's business, especially in Cuban politics and geopolitics. Uh, you say that the protesters are against the regime that in power now, but is it true because uh, during Raul Castro, during uh, or even uh, the predecessor before it, it's still it's still uh, communist in this in the sense, but now that they have Miguel Diaz Canal. It's uh, suddenly in 2021, they started this, uh, they never seen something like this, the biggest riot in Cuba. What's th- what do you think behind it? I think there's two things to take into consideration. I mean, before, let's look at the leaders that are in charge of uh, Cuba right now. Do they present themselves as the typical, you know, macho strongman that the South America and Central America has been plagued with? Or is it something along the lines of like, uh, I don't know, Brazil's Bolsonaro? Uh, who is sort of like uh, has that you know machismo kind of personality, that aura of uh, masculinity. But however, I mean, you have to just consider the characteristics that these kinds of uh, dictatorial regimes go uh, pass and they ebb and flow with the character of the person in charge. So if you have a character who is more meek, who isn't as you know as uh, inspiring or able to invoke some kind of authority compared to their predecessors, of course, that's so it's seen as a sign of weakness. Uh, let's take North Korea, for example. So, you know, the first generation, we had uh, Kim Il-sung, who was beloved. The son was also you know, beloved, but not to the same degree. But then comes uh, Kim Jong-un, who is this, you know, almost this deity kind of figure. And not just on the precipice of the, um, the position that he was in or the cult of personality that they developed, but because he embodied the same characteristics that uh, the North Koreans found quite attractive in his grandfather. So is it, you can take the same uh, application into the context of Cuba. If it's not really a strong individual, right, it can be seen as like, oh, okay, this is our opportunity. We need something to change here and now. And I guess because uh, you can see that Biden himself, a Democrat, the Democrats have always had a long history of you know, foreign interference. So maybe uh, he might continue that kind of policy inside Cuba, we don't really know. But I, don't, I just know that he's under a lot of pressure because it's a very messy web to untangle and you know to mess with Cuba again, considering what happened back in the 60s. It's a very precarious situation. It's very interesting you bring in Biden there because uh, let's take from when uh, Clinton was uh, in power. Uh, he was very... He relaxed some of the embargo or whatever. He wasn't the first in many years since uh, the 1960s embargo. And then you, uh, we, uh, Bush Jr. came in and he uh, reversed what 
Clinton did. And then Obama, who in 2015, he again relaxed it. And then uh, uh, I don't think Trump did anything against uh, Cuba, at least not this uh, scale. I don't know what they've done uh, in the internally. But now again, Biden doing something like this. I, I, I know it's a conspiracy theorist or maybe something too obvious when people say like such a big riot, of course, backed by Americans. Uh, how... Do you think that's whole water in 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 that uh, sense? I mean, it's not a surprise to see some kind of conspiracy theory that uh, these kinds of riots and protests are somehow backed by you know, lobbies or certain individuals or entities that has infiltrated the uh, American bureaucracy or government. Um, you know, let's look at Thailand. The the, the the red shirt protests. Yes, the color protests. Now, you know, if you take the rabbit hole in the conspiracy theories, that these are always funded by. Uh, entities which are always pro-democracy that want to push for democratic freedoms in certain countries. Thailand experienced that. Uh, there was one conspiracy theory brewing around that um, Malaysia during the whole Bursa thing. I won't say too much into that. Um, but yeah, there is that kind of uh, proclivity to look through that kind of lens. I mean, is it really um, that surprising, to be honest, that I mean, instead of uh, direct intervention that America does, which you know captures news, wouldn't it be far, it's not really that far-fetched to think that they would try to undermine certain regimes in countries that they find uh, they have certain interests in or they find an existential uh, threat to? I mean, um, okay, let's look at um, America's history with uh, Cuba. Why they saw it as an existential threat back then is because of the Cold War. So there was this whole uh, you know, the ideolo- ideological battle between you know, capitalism and communism. So that slowly eroded, and we could see that with uh, Clinton, because the priorities of America were shifted from you know communists to the war on terror, and you know uh, Bush also continued that. Obama also was following the same vein, you know, uh, with uh, with Libya. <laughs> That's another topic altogether. But yeah, I mean, <coughs> it's not that far fetched to assume that to be the case. A lot of these, you know, uh, you could. I mean, people can see that. Um, I don't know. Like, I, okay, conspiracy theorists can see that um, they could they find ways to trace this back to, let's say, um, the whole uh, banking institutions that are funding these protests. So maybe there are elements there, maybe there aren't. So it depends on what context you want to look at it. Do you want to look at this protest as something that's um, astroturfing or you know, from uh, lead decision makers just to make it look as if it's an organic movement or not? That's really up to the person to decide. Um, it all started because of Cold War, because of the Soviet Union back in Cuba, uh, back in the days. It's been almost what thirty, thirty more years since Soviet Union dissolved, and uh, Cuba and still since uh, still uh, seen as as a threat to America. Where do you see where's where's the rationale behind this? I think you have to look into how much the Bay of Pigs invasion had an impact on the American psyche. I mean, back then America was seen as a strong man; it can do whatever it wants as long as it puts in enough. Uh, resources, but then Bay of Pigs, that was a disaster. You, then you have Vietnam, which is also a disaster. And these things still, you know, permeate into the uh, American pop culture. Like, you know, all these kinds of jokes about, you know, Vietnam uh, veterans flashbacks, all that. In Cuba is the same vein as well. Uh, you bring up Bay of Pigs, it's still a very fresh memory uh, in the American, uh, American society, just as much as uh, the Second World War was. So maybe this is why the whole sentiment towards Cuba is still... Uh, pervasive in uh, American mentality. Well, that's um, I don't know. Like, um, 
now we have uh, like you said like not so much of a stalwart figure the, the Miguel Diaz Canel but do do you see himself defending this or Cuba definitely going to cave in to more democratic uh, in terms of US flavor and can't be too sure because I didn't really look too much into uh, into Miguel because uh, but I think that it just gives a it's just seen as like an opportunity to strike So we would see where does it go from here because, you, like you said, this is the biggest uh, organized uh, protest by Cubans ever ever seen. So maybe there would be some kind of uh, domestic pressure there. And if America would seek to interfere in some way, but I'd, I'd imagine that um, they have other priorities right now. I mean, they have still. Do you think any other surrounding countries, uh, neighboring countries especially, uh, benefiting from this conflict between Cuba and America? I mean, you, um, I could say that um, not exactly states itself, but maybe uh, criminal undergrounds, especially in like uh, cartel. Yes, cartels. You know, they would benefit a lot from you know smuggling of trade, smuggling of arms between you know to and fro, just to incite some kind of uh, conflict. So you know, it's the criminal underground within uh, neighboring states that I would be more concerned of. But uh, in terms of uh, foreign policy i guess you know that a lot of central america they also had their own uh, rough and tattered history so you know they could see cuba as a geostrategic location you know position quite conveniently on the caribbean sea uh you know and the panama canal you know, in close proximity so in terms of trade relations i think that would be the angle that they'll take to make sure that there's some kind of uh, stability or they would hope for cuba to open up its markets a bit more to be a bit more Uh, lenient in a way. I'm, I'm not too sure about uh, that arrangement in Cuba right now. I'm, I'm just making a guess based on its uh, communist uh, proclivities. Talking about market, uh, Miguel Diaz mentioned the other day, like uh, di- di- uh, he basically blaming uh, American government because of the sanction, because uh, certainly because of the sanctions, because uh, no livelihood can, can 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 happen. Like people are suffering and whatnot. Inflations uh, keep keep rising and just yesterday uh, Mexico donated 2 million tons of medicals and food supplies uh, NGO American best NGO uh, give a lot of uh, contribution as well but yet uh, your neighborhood friendly neighborhood America uh, ne- never lift a finger to just ease the, uh, the, 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 the restriction that they're having right now uh, on top of COVID-19 and whatever happens in Cuba right now So do you, do you do you see America going to play a better role better as as in you know at least easing this uh, sanction to my god econ- I can't imagine a country like size of Cuba having economic uh, economic sanction like this in times like this I mean America's America you don't look at the president Uh, itself for to see the trajectory of foreign policy. In largely, American foreign policy is kind of a, like a black box. If they see their interests being challenged somehow, they'll find a way to undermine. Nowadays, they don't do it directly, not like Libya or Iraq. But you know, they would find ways. They have the resources to you know undermine authority. Like look at uh, all of Central America, South America during the whole Cold War. Like you know, they were making regime changes, left, right, and center, funding you know uh, freedom fighters, so to say. <laughs> Uh, and that ended terribly, but you know maybe they've learned lessons from there. Maybe they learned where not to poke. Maybe they're a bit more discreet. So you we can't really say for sure on what their intentions are. 
Uh, I mean, concretely, I mean, people would have their theories, uh, but I'd rather not get into something that is more speculative. Talking about uh, American interests and also uh, freedom fighters, let's move on to Afghanistan because uh, this is also uh, another involvement in America, somewhere else, in some way away from Cuba. Worlds away. Worlds away in uh, South Asia. And we have Afghanistan. And here's my quick question to you. Why so abruptly leaving Afghanistan like that? You've been in the country for 20 years and you live just like that. Why the rush? Well, I mean, the, the occupation I and mean, the military activity that they've conducted there has been how many years already? 20, 30 years, people's always been anti-Afghanistan. You know, they have to leave Afghanistan in order for it to recover. Or, you know, you can also say that oh, Afghanistan is beyond saving already. I mean, look at how the Taliban runs things and all the t- terrorist attacks, you know, bleeding through the border into Pakistan. So I think uh, America, you know, okay, from the basis of just like being there by virtue of America's position in Afghanistan, I think... It is a very challenging situation. It's a position where anything can happen. You have foreign intervention, and we know foreign intervention never really works in that kind of context. But it's a powder keg, really, and it's just America being there is just going to ignite it even further. And I guess is because you know we have all kinds of reports uh, in you know, UN um, peacekeeping forces or American uh, soldiers engaging in certain activities which are quite debauched or degenerate, and you know. I guess international pressure would call for Afghanistan. You know, it's time to leave Afghanistan. And this, the war weariness of, of, Amer- of Americans, you know, you, what's the point of sending your you know, servicemen over to half a world away to a country they don't know anything about or really don't care about just to serve there, have injuries, come back broken with all the traumas associated with that kind of occupation? Uh, okay, I shouldn't really say occupation, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, well, uh, as much as it is something very abrupt and uh, America leaving Afghanistan, uh, just I think yesterday the, uh, Biden also says that they're still gonna left some uh, troops there and then some uh, just I think I think two days ago uh, America did an airstrike to uh, uh, in Afghanistan also. I'm, I'm sure they're getting the Taliban's, uh, but do you apart? Apart from this, do you see Biden doing this so abruptly because it wants to focus its uh, military strength to China, to oppose China? That could be a you know a reasonable speculation there. But I think another player involved is Iran. I think Iran has just really stepped up its efforts to assert itself uh, between its neighbors. And we know so America and Iran, they don't really get along that well. Um, so I think there's a conflict of interest there. If America engages too much... If Iran's renewed enthusiasm, it might cause you know a spillover of conflict right there, and they won't engage directly. But you know, all the proxies that are already placed in Afghanistan, and you think the Russians also don't have their own proxies that's left over, for, you know, trying to, even though as minute in my, the detail it might be there, it's the element might still be there. And I guess this is just a way to avoid a three-way conflict between all these three regional powers. I mean, let's call it America regional power because it can project itself in the region, but. Um, yeah, I mean, Iran, yeah, I think, is the wild card here and that is uh, causing America to reassess its efforts there. And considering its rocky relationship with uh, Trump uh, over his uh, presidency, I think it will be a best way to cool the relationship between both countries, even though they are still uh, quite hostile to each other. Do you see, I, I want to bring China back in, because do you see 
that America see the, this as a zero sum game because uh, we all know Pakistan is the huge fan supporters of Taliban with all the backings with the, all the funding be very careful with those words <laughs> I, I mean uh, in in I think 2000 uh, when some of the higher rank of Talibans that they, they take they took shelter in Pakistan when uh, uh, America invade Afghanistan so there, there you go uh, uh, how how friendly Pakistan is to to okay I'm gonna use friendly okay uh, how friendly Pakistan is to Talibans what I'm saying is Do you see China actually behind why Pakistan is so keen on on funding this? Because they just like you talk. Uh, like, I mean, like you said just now, uh, proxies, right? Like China are not going to really meddling something very directly, just like Iran. But hey, we got Pakistan conveniently sharing a border, conveniently next to another, conveniently already have historically together Pashtun, whatever. Why not just give them money? Give maybe military assistance aid just to poke into uh, uh, yeah, America's bubble? I mean, let's look at Pakistan's context, uh, where it is placed. You're surrounded by countries that absolutely hate each other. They just want to, you know, at each other's throats. Yeah. So I guess, you know, the, in a sense of power projection of trying to assess your position as something to be taken seriously, it would make sense for Pakistan to, you know, poke the stick Uh, so to say, but and the fact is that Pakistan is backed by China, you know the biggest, one of the bigger players in the playground. So I think it would give them a co- just cause to be a bit more blasé, to be a bit more bold in their approaches. But you know, let's remember that Pakistan, even though the uh, the government or you know the secret service that's behind really the government, or let's be honest here, Pakistan is really controlled by the <laughs> secret service here at this point. But um, yeah, I mean even though they have some kind of arrangement with uh, Afghanistan in terms of refugees, what, what, what does the Pakistani people say if you're Pakistan? Because, you know, the it's quite convenient that a lot of the Afghanistan refugees, they can move into uh, neighboring provinces, uh, regions in uh, Pakistan, which are quite rural, where things aren't so reported. And that is where a lot of, like, say, terrorist attacks, bombings occur. So this is uh, it's quite a fine line they've drawn between each other. It's like, okay, we'll be quite lenient, but uh, we'll also have to take a stance on all this uh, mischief that's happening in the northern part of Pakistan. We cannot say Pakistan without mentioning India also. Yeah, like uh, I said, they all hate each other. You're surrounded yes. by everyone that hates you. So what's what's India's role in this uh, Afghanistan-Pakistan triangle? Yeah. I think, you know, let's, let's just look at uh, Jammu and Kashmir. Mm-hmm. I guess that's the, they'll take the same kind of uh, stance they have to make sure that uh, Pakistan does not accrue or gain enough influence that they can they, they think they're a bit more bolder you know it's uh it's not really a uh how do you say mental battle between who's stronger who's not but who seems to seem who who, who looks stronger from one another you know this bleeds into you know cricket uh, all kinds of stuff stuff that's not really directly involved in government so you know i guess any chance that india will take to maintain its uh, position vis-a-vis uh, Pakistan in terms of power, I guess they'll go, t- they'll take it. Since America leaving, uh, what, two weeks ago, Afghanistan, two weeks ago, one third of all the districts in Afghanistan already fallen to uh, Taliban's. And I see in the future what's the key factor in determining how Afghanistan going to be is whether ANDSF 
could hold to Taliban's uh, I mean I don't know because people say ANDSF is like well, I don't know they have like oh, almost a million personnel or oh, half a million personnel like four, somewhere 400,000 personnel and Taliban is just like around what not even 100,000 but even not even America could beat Taliban uh, this is all you know the Vietnam war kind of again like s- small in numbers but they are they know the territory they know all everything about about Afghanistan so uh, is there actually any chance for other people to beat Taliban well you look at the Taliban they're really they're an organized uh, force to be reckoned with even though you know you could argue that their presence has diminished but like you said they were able to Uh, take quite a lot of uh, territory for themselves. But, you know, they've been doing this for how many years? The region has been plagued with so many, uh, you know, conflict between uh, regional powers. Like, you know, let's, l- let's look at, um, okay, back when Alexander the Great, he moved into, uh, back then it was Afghanistan, was, you know, the region of Sogdia. So, you know, it was, and then after that, you have like uh, Genghis Khan, Temujin, Uh, and uh, Tamerlane, all that occupying there. So it's you know it's a it's a region that's been fought over many many times. Now people say it's the graveyard of uh, great empires, but you know great empires took them or almost took them. So how, what can you say? They just and these empires never really died there, and they died somewhere else. But you see, it's 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 a region that's uh, has this long tradition and long history of uh, of uh, a warrior like culture. And you know that's led led it to its success back then. You know, with all these uh, Turko Mongols, and uh, I think you could say the Mughals also uh, were derived from that kind of tradition. So, in a way, th- this kind of bred that into their psyche that they they have to resist against uh, uh, foreign foreign uh, entities. So you know, but then again, the, the Taliban is only one demographic of uh, the Afghani people. I've noticed like uh, some people in Afghanistan they've been uh, quite combative and quite they're trying to be as resilient as possible but you know the Taliban they weaponize religion and that is something that is taken such a premium to uh, people there so that will be the psychological edge the Taliban would still hold yeah and also they're the majority the Pashtun are the majority in uh, in Afghanistan it's like if you radicalize uh, Malay it Don't talk the whole Malay, just Semenanjung Malays. Yeah. That would be it. That's that would like, be it. Yeah. Would I be mean, it. you could say a portion of it's already radicalized. So, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. I mean, That's we have we difference. have like if we have like our own people like going all the way to ISIS and becoming top ranking of uh, individuals there. <laughs> yes, correct, correct. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, I mean not just Malaysia, even UK very famously, you know, uh, being recruited to ISIS. So that's not very. Uh, rare to see a Malaysian to actually go and to be volunteer as ISIS. Um, so what's next for uh, Afghanistan? Now America left. So what's next? Is it, is it Afghanistan up for grabs? I think uh, judging by Iran's positioning right now, I think they see, they see as free real estate right now. <laughs> oh, wow. But you know, humanitarian uh, organizations will still be operational there, NGO, you know, Will still be in operate. Will be still operational there, but on humanitarian grounds, mm-hmm. the UN would still keep a close eye on it to make sure that you know no funny business. Um, but you know, uh, the UN can only do so much. You know, what can it really do against uh, something like Iran, which have never really adhered to the conventions or the uh, traditions of the UN? Mm-hmm. So, 
that, there you have it, really. It's uh, all up for speculation. Iran wants to uh, take back its position uh, as a strong regional hegemon. Um, the Afghani people, they are also going to be quite, they have to play a, quite a role in you know, civil society there, which I think they've slowly had a bit of a awakening to all the things that Afghanistan's been through and they want to take things into their own hands and let uh, some radical uh, groups uh, take over. You know, Iran's also going through the same thing. Um, you know, people are becoming more uh, against the Islamic Republic, Islamic government there. Do you see this will be uh, America exiting? Uh, do you think this will be like a domino effect uh, in America, in the Middle East? So they're just gonna uh, exit more territories, like maybe uh, Iraq. I think Syria is still a contentious issue. I mean, uh, what was it? When I think Trump was the one that was trying to get boots off the ground while the Democrats were pushing for it in a way. Um, but you know, uh, when has American intervention really worked? <laughs> and and the, when they leave, let's, let's let's look at what they left behind. Uh, when they invaded Libya, they ousted Gaddafi, and they left behind like you know a, sh- a government that's barely functioning. It's in tatters compared to its uh, its heyday back then. Iraq, same story. Uh, so I think they're going to leave Afghanistan much worse than really than when they came. But uh, you know, like I said, Iran's going to find a way to project, or maybe this could be America's tactic or strategy to. Yeah, they'll they'll they maybe they'll plant some kind of elements of uh, surveillance there, or find ways to undermine certain uh, entities which are against their interests. I mean, America will never really leave. They'll leave something behind mm-hmm. to keep tabs on it. Of course, yeah. So, uh, do you see any direct or indirectly affecting Southeast Asia? No. Um, well, we're quite insulated from the situation, mm-hmm. but you know, when any time there's a issue of a religious nature. Uh, Malaysians would always uh, have a field day with that. You know, Malaysian Facebook goes nuts let for anything, let's say, Israel-Palestine, uh, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. So, you know, if there's some kind of religious dimension applied to Afghanistan uh, by uh, Iran, which is uh, dominantly Shia Muslims, I think there would be some kind of uh, public outcry. But mm, really nothing much more than that. You know, there's always going to be those people that's going to go there and fight. Um, they'll find a way. Um, but not necessarily. Maybe America will refocus its attempts at the South China Sea. You know, they have more resources to dispense to keep China's uh, uh, influence from becoming too um, prominent here. Yeah, because that's what I'm predicting. Because uh, I think last week uh, Britain actually deploying two permanent ships around uh, the just the within the Nandesh area, right? So I guess uh, if America can deploy two, I'm sure America can deploy 10 times or 100 times of that to just just maybe to piss off China, Jinping, looking at that, oh, America coming over our ass. So that's, I think, uh, what I think was going to happen. Uh, this is just the beginning of the end, maybe, for, for, for China um, uh, uh, pursue to 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 gain all the territories that actually like have historically claim on whatever this nine dash uh, territory. Well, um, with that, that's uh, for this episode. Uh, we just uh, briefly mentioned about what's happening in uh, in Cuba and also Afghanistan uh, with American intervention. Uh, if you like more of this content, please let us know on our social media f- platform. 
Facebook or or uh, our YouTube channel. Yeah, you know, Hafiz took us all all around the world, <laughs> from <laughs> from Central America to you know Central Asia, South Asia to Southeast Asia. Oh wow, what a, what a lightning fast! Antarctica <laughs> coming up next. <laughs> <laughs> American putting uh, boots on the ground in Antarctica to fight the penguins there. <laughs> all right, uh, with that. With that, goodbye for now. See you on the next episode. All right. See you, everyone.